Today I'm going to talk a little bit about speeches in ancient history and specifically about acts and speeches and acts. I'm going to try to keep the preliminaries uh, down somewhat. There's a lot that I could say on this topic. It's a big topic. If you're interested, please get a hold of a copy of The Mirror or the Mask and check out Chapter 7 on speeches in ancient historical writing. I get into a lot of really interesting uh, material there, and I'm challenging the, the simplistic use that I see that's being made of the fact, and it is a fact, that some ancient authors did invent speeches. So sometimes you'll hear, well, uh, ancient people thought it was fine to invent speeches, the gospel authors were ancient people, and so then, you know, at least it's supposed to sort of shift the burden of proof, and um, you're supposed to kind of think there's got a kind of a prima facie case that uh, the gospel authors being ancient guys probably thought it was okay. Maybe not, you know, an absolute deductive argument, but but a, a pretty good case, because it supposedly was just, you know, acceptable in ancient times to make up speeches. And that's way too uh, simplistic as an approach. And I talk about a lot of that here. Uh, so, for example, some people made up speeches. That is true. There were ancient historical authors, and when it came to speeches, they would make them up. But uh, other people didn't, and Polybius was particularly opposed to it. Um, Colin Hemer suggests that the invention of speeches was not uh, sort of a best practices, uh, particularly not in the absence of sources for what actually was said at those times. But yes, uh, some invented speeches, and even more interesting, we find people talking about inventing speeches. So unlike the vast majority of uh, claimed ancient literary devices, in fact, pretty much all of them except this one, um, we actually have ancient documents in which they will say, yes, it's okay to make up speeches, or no, it's not okay to make up speeches, or well, it's okay to make up speeches, but don't make them too silly, or something like that. We actually have explicit meta-level discussions of it which we don't have for, you know, changing chronology and so forth. And I, I get into that. And another misuse that sometimes is made uh, is to just infer that then, well, if they were uh, making up speeches, then they also thought that it was okay to change chronology. Well, that doesn't follow. Um, you'll see the introduction of making up speeches just kind of out of the blue sometimes when the actual topic of conversation is something quite different, some different kind of change or invention of events. So there's a lot that could be said here. But yes, it's true. There were ancient authors who made up speeches and ancient authors who approved of making up speeches. But there was enough difference of practice and difference of opinion that that's not a very useful thing to say as far as what we should expect when we turn to the Gospels. Another important preliminary to be made here, though, is that if anybody among the four uh, evangelists was likely to make up speeches, we would expect more than the others that it would be Luke. I'm not saying Luke was likely to, but if any of them did, Luke would have been the least unlikely, let's put it that way, and even more so in the book of Acts than in the Gospel of Luke. Why is that? Well, because Luke has such excellent Greek. He writes 
possibly the best Greek in the New Testament. Um, and he's, he's clearly well-educated. He's probably a Gentile. Um, so he would have heard, or he might have heard, he had a chance to hear, other, unlike, uh, I really do not think Matthew was out there reading ancient historiography, um, but Luke might have had a chance to hear of the fact that some authors considered it acceptable to make up speeches. He might have picked that up in his education. Um, also, in the Book of Acts, we get a lot of what I call set peace speeches. By that, I mean that they're spoken without interruption. The context is given, and then the person stands up, and it's like, and he addressed them thus, you know, he said, as opposed to uh, dialogues and so forth, which you get in uh, the Gospels, or even um, something like the Sermon on the Level Place, which is very choppy uh, and aphoristic in nature. In Acts, you get more speeches that have a certain logic and flow to them, where the person is trying to persuade someone of something. Okay, so that would be where if someone was going to make up a speech, you'd be more likely to find it. So if we're going to expect to find made up speeches anywhere in the Gospels or Acts, it would be most likely to be in one of the writings of Luke um, and more even likely in Acts than in Luke. So conversely, if we go to Acts and we find that he seems to be recording speeches quite accurately, then it's like, okay, you know, that was the best shot. And it doesn't even seem that he's doing this thing of making up speeches. Of course, I also talk in uh, The Mirror or The Mask about the uh, straw man of absolute verbatim, you know, tape recorder recording, which is not what I'm claiming, um, and what, how we should use the word paraphrase and how the word paraphrase gets abused. I'm not going to go into all of that here. Um, but I am going to argue that uh, in Acts, Luke is quite careful and accurate. And I, I think he clearly has good sources and in some of the cases was probably there in person to, to witness the speech that was given. So what I want to talk about are two accounts by Paul. They're in the mouth of Paul uh, that include his conversion and telling about, you know, his ministry and who he is and kind of defending himself. One of these is in Acts 22, 1 through 21. That's his speech to the angry mob in Jerusalem, the angry Jewish mob that was beating him up. He was rescued by the Roman soldiers, and then he asks for permission to address the mob. So he's on the stairs as they're rescuing him, and he says, can I please speak to the crowd? And he does for a while, and then they they won't let him go any further. They explode at a certain point and start yelling, and, and the soldiers drag him away. That's Acts 22, 1 through 21. Um, the other is in Acts 26, 2 through 23, and that's his defense before Agrippa and Festus. And I'm, I'm using here a work called The Evidential Value of the Acts of the Apostles by John Saul Housen. This is one of these great 19th century works. I'll try to find a link to the uh, whole book, you know, that's not in copyright anymore, and try to put that in the show notes. Um, 
and he contrasts these two speeches, both by Paul, okay, but how different they are and how suited they are to their audiences. Now, I want to just say right here, and I want to just sort of uh, anticipate an objection that someone might try to give. Someone might say, well, if, if Luke is portraying Paul as addressing these different audiences in different ways, that just shows how clever Luke is. Um, and after all, you know, they were supposed to write something that was the way the person would talk. So this isn't really evidence that this is, um, that this is accurate speech reporting. I think that's a very poor argument. Um, the general notion that if you were going to make up a speech, you were supposed to make it sound like the kind of thing the person would say is, is very broad. And it's, it's meant to counteract just kind of a silly rhetorical writing where you would get all flowery and you'd uh, put that into the mouth of some soldier or something, which is not the way a soldier would ever talk. The kinds of things we're talking about here are much more detailed and subtle than that. And quite frankly, if you're not going to admit these as evidence of accuracy in speech reporting, then you're not going to admit anything as evidence. And that's a kind of closed mindedness. I find this with skeptics a lot, that any con uh, confirmation you find, even like in facts, incidental details or whatever, they'll just be like, well, that just shows how smart he was. That just shows how clever he was. And, and so at that point, it's like a you know, Cartesian deceiver scenario or whatever, where you're not going to let anything count as contrary evidence. And I don't think that's a rational way to be. So with that, all that said, I'm taking this from pages 133 to 134 of The Mirror or the Mask. Uh, it, it's part of a whole chapter on this topic of speeches. So first of all, let's talk about um, something that Paul does in both. I, I'm partly reading what I have here, because I wrote it, I might as well use it, right? In both of these speeches, Paul omits certain facts that might have been of interest to Luke as the narrator, but would have been of less interest to Paul's audience. These include, for example, his not eating for several days after his experience on the road to Damascus, and the scales that fell from his eyes when he was healed, both mentioned in the narrator's version of the story. So he's telling about his being uh, called by Jesus to the ministry, but he doesn't go into those kinds of physical, I might even say medical details, which are told in the narrative back in Acts 9. Okay, before the mob in Jerusalem, this is Acts 22, Paul presents himself strongly as an observ observant Jew and emphasizes his and others' Jewish devoutness in order to keep the mob's attention and make them more favorable to himself. Think about the fact that in the epistles, Paul says, I am become all things to all men, right? So that's the kind of thing that he does do. He likes to um, appeal to people by, by being, um, we might call it relevant or missional. Um, I kind of hate that word, but that he's, he's trying to show the aspects of himself that are most appealing to a given audience. So here's a, a, some specifics. He calls his audience brothers and fathers, Acts 22.1. He emphasizes his own rabbinic education under Gamaliel, verse 3. He emphasizes, this is really interesting, the Jewish devoutness of Ananias, who came to him in Damascus. Ananias is the one who was sent to him to touch him uh, and healed his eyes after he, he lost his vision on the, on the Damascus road. And 
so the way that Paul talks about him here to the mob is he calls him a man who was devout by the standard of the law. That's verse 12. Um, he does not call him a Christian. He does not call him a follower of Jesus. That's important because this is a very angry Jewish audience, and he's trying to appeal to them in in terms that would make sense to them. So if he's going to describe the, you know, one of the first Christians he had a conversation with, he he not going to describe him right away as a Christian. He's going to call him a devout keeper of, of the Jewish law. Okay, now this is, is one of my favorites. Paul cleverly delays any use of the word Gentiles throughout his speech until he's had a chance to tell his story. So, for example, in verse 15, he tells them that Ananias said, the God of our fathers has sent you to be a witness to all men. Okay, so it's, it's kept vague deliberately. But eventually, he gets to a point where he says he had another vision of Jesus who told him to leave and, and to go away, and Jesus was sending him to the Gentiles. This is verse 21. When he says that at last, the crowd erupts in fury, and, and the crowd won't let him continue. But he has had a chance to speak already for some time. Now, that's really clever. That's a clever uh, speaker's set of techniques. And you should be able to see that and see that it's a mark of Paul's cleverness, not uh, try again in this sort of this sort of Cartesian demon way to attribute it to Luke and say, oh, that's Luke's cleverness, trying to make it look like it's Paul's cleverness to uh, make a good story or something like that. On the face of it, this is this is uh, an accurate record of a speaker speaking to a hostile audience and trying to keep their attention as long as possible by um, speaking in a way that is um, acceptable to them. All right, in contrast, before Agrippa and Festus, Acts 26, Paul omits any mention of Ananias. And so J.S. Housen says, the authority of an obscure Jew of Damascus could have no weight with Agrippa. And I think that's plausible. Doesn't even mention it. Okay. To Agrippa and Festus, Paul speaks sympathetically of the Christians from his first mention of them. He calls them saints, 2610. He says that in his own persecution of the Christians, he tried to induce them to blaspheme, verse 11. And um, that fits well with his own self-accusation in his epistles. Of course, it wouldn't have gone over well with a Jewish audience, right? To say, I was so bad. I was trying to get them to blaspheme by rejecting Jesus of Nazareth and, and so on and so on, right? Um, but he's he's just right away from the beginning presenting the Christians sympathetically to Agrippa and Festus. And, and that's understandable. He wants them to think well of the Christians. And then Paul mentions to Agrippa and Festus, that the voice from heaven spoke to him in a Hebrew dialect. That's verse 14, probably Aramaic. Now, it's a casual indication that at that moment, he's speaking to a Gentile audience, probably speaking in Greek, to Agrippa and Festus. There would have been less point in mentioning that to the Jewish audience in chapter 22. Uh, there, he's probably already addressing them in a Hebrew dialect. So there's not that contrast, whereas when he's speaking to Agrippa and Festus, if he's speaking in Greek, then he says, and the voice from heaven spoke to me, um, and what I'm about to tell you that it said, you know, that's my translation because it was speaking to me in a Hebrew dialect. Uh, it's just fascinating. 
Uh, and the way I put it here is these little touches are well explained by Luke's having accurate access to what Paul said on these occasions and is being quite strikingly careful in recording what Paul said. Even though it is not necessary to take Luke to be recording the speeches verbatim, they are more detailed and Pauline even than a phrase like Luke in summaries might be taken to indicate. So uh, that's Hemer's phrase. And in general, I, I agree with Hemer, but Hemer uses the phrase Luke in summaries. And um, I think they're, they're more detailed than that. These are precisely the kinds of speeches in which one might expect an author like Josephus to show his own eloquence rather than recording with a notable degree of accuracy a speech actually given to a specific audience in a specific language. If Luke was both so knowledgeable and so conservative in recording the speeches of Paul, how much more likely is it that both Luke and the other authors of the Gospels would not adapt or invent the speeches of Jesus? And by adapt, I mean heavily adapt or just kind of, you know, Jesus says one little phrase and they're going to make up a whole long speech that's kind of a riff on that little phrase. No, um, I think this is evidence that they didn't do so indirectly. Uh, I may do another video or two on this question of speeches and acts. Of course, there are plenty of scholars who think that Luke definitely did make up the speeches and acts, but um, I'm trying to show you some of the evidence on the other side. And I think it's especially good to bring out Housen because that work is not widely known. Okay, I, I hope that you will keep on watching week by week. And, uh, you know, sometimes I just decide what I'm going to do. Um, kind of on the fly a few days before, so I can't always uh, anticipate what I'm going to be talking on, but I think next week I'm going to be continuing to talk about speeches and acts. Thanks for watching. Come back. We're making common sense rigorous.